Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Menashe. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We've got two great guests all the way from Cambridge in the UK. Welcome to the show, Michael Barnhart and Susie Sevier. Thanks, Victor. Really excited to be on your show and provide value to your listeners. Well, great to have you here. You're based in the UK, but you're originally from the Western Hemisphere, and you're there stationed for a little while longer. But maybe before we dive into the details, give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey. Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit of our backstory was before moving here, we lived in Colorado Springs. And so Michael was teaching at the Air Force Academy, and I had recently got my MBA at the University of Denver. So with him teaching there, they wanted to promote him, but he has to get a PhD. So that is how we ended up all the way on this side of the pond, because Michael is getting his PhD in biochemistry. And then while we're here, I am working as a program manager for a biotech company, but super exciting. I'm going into real estate full-time in August. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. But then to bring it together... After we leave Cambridge, England, we will go back to Colorado Springs so that he can continue teaching at the Air Force Academy, and that's how he'll finish out his career. But our journey in real estate started actually because of COVID-19 and the lockdowns. So when the first one happened over here, we actually had no idea how long it was going to last. And so Michael and I started a mini book club with each other. And one of the books was Multiple Streams of Income. And Robert Allen just made it sound really easy. And now we found out that it's not as easy as the book made it sound. But you know, from there, because everything was virtual, we just dove right in to educate ourselves and build a team and do, you know, all of the multiple tasks that there is to do in order to actually take down a deal. But our thing was that if people can do it, like from Washington to Florida, there's no reason why we can't do it from the UK to the US. Absolutely. What you're describing is a fairly typical journey that people go through. It's really taking the plunge, making the decision that, you know, there's no good time. You're not going to learn to do this. It's like learning to swim by reading a textbook from the side of the pool. Yeah. It just doesn't work. <laughs> you know, you have to get in the water. And it doesn't matter if you're investing locally or investing remotely, you have to get in the water. And that's what you've done, which is amazing. And when you do, you'll discover, yes, there are things that are hard and there are things that go according to plan and everything in between. And the key, of course, is to get the right people in the right chairs, get the right skills in the team. And that's the most important thing. Because a good deal badly managed, of course, is no deal. So the only differentiator is making sure that you got the right folks on the team. So you're there in the UK. Where are you investing? So we're actually investing in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we're looking at other Oklahoma markets as well. But Tulsa is kind of our focus right now. And what is it about Tulsa that attracted you? Actually, initially, because we're overseas, we needed a boots on the ground partner in the States, right? We need somebody to walk the asset, touch it, feel it, take pictures of it, you know, and, and report back to us. Through posting about real estate on Facebook and other social media, like one of my buddies from the Air Force Academy reached out to me, somebody that I've known now for like 16 years and said, hey, I'm real estate full time. Like I'm interested in multifamily as well. Let's let's team up. And so I knew him. I liked him. I trusted him. And we kind of linked arms and we became a team. And he was our boots on the ground. And we kind of managed everything from over here. As far as like taking down the deal, I was working on acquisitions. Susie's focusing on marketing, investor relations side of things. He's actually located in Oklahoma City. And so we started looking at Oklahoma City. And then we also looked at Tulsa. And we really liked Tulsa a little bit better than Oklahoma City right now. I mean, 
the multifamily metrics that came out for 2020 are just fantastic for Tulsa. Maybe I shouldn't say that too much on your podcast here. I don't want a storm of uh, investors there, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's great. Um, one of our, you know, we have three parts of our investment thesis, and that is we, we want to buy a property that's cash flowing from day one. We want to buy a property that at least 40 to 50% of the return comes from cash flow. And the third thing is we're looking for stabilized assets where we can obtain long-term financing with low interest rates. And so Tulsa provided all those things. It's a you know solid cash flow market. We can buy properties at higher cap rates and therefore not bank too much on appreciation side of things. That's a smart move because if you look at a lot of the primary markets, they're definitely picked over. There's a ton of competition. If any property appears on the market of any size, it's going to sell over asking price and multiple offers. And so, you know, do you really want to be the winning bidder with 19 other bidders behind you? You're almost guaranteed to be paying too much, which frankly is why we've kind of stayed out of that particular segment. And we're focused almost exclusively on new construction these days, because even with the increase in construction cost, we can still deliver a very competitive product, price competitive product for a fraction of what it's really costing to, to buy things in the open market. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing too is like we've extensively built our network. So a lot of our deal flow is coming from network now, not so much marketing and, and through brokers, which has been very good. So it ensures that we're kind of not overpaying for a property, if you will. That's key. That's key. I, I hear from a lot of rookie investors, they say, I can't find deals, I can't find deals. And the and I say this with all humility, we don't ever go looking for deals. They all come to us, every single one of them. You know, it's partly market positioning, it's partly recognition that a good deal when it's looking for money will go to where it can find the money. Good opportunities, they don't last very long. So it's really all about track record and execution and expertise. Oftentimes, we get approached simply by landowners who say, I've got a piece of dirt. I don't know what I can do with it. What would be the highest and best use? Because they just don't know. I mean, people weren't born knowing how to read zoning maps or read through a thousand pages of zoning ordinance. For us, that's routine, but for the uninitiated, it's a bit overwhelming. And so it's back to finding the right people. For many folks, we're the right people, just like I think for many folks, you're the right people. Mm -hmm. So what has it been like this year? There's obviously been a lot of concern about the pandemic, about rent collections. You talk about buying stabilized asset. You can have an asset that's full, but still have economic vacancy, especially in today's environment. How have you navigated through that? That's a great question. So like another big part of us investing over here is that we knew that we had to have a very strong property management team that aligned with our core values. And with that, our property management company, like we have discussed, like there are people living in this community, right? Like they are actually the lifeblood to like what we want to be able to do in life. And so we have to treat them as that. And we made it so that the property manager that is there actually has really great connections with all of the residents. And so we have resident events, we have opportunities for the residents to come in and ask for help when it comes to having to apply for rent relief. And actually all of that has made it so that we've only actually had a few. And when I say few, I mean like three residents who have completely ignored us. Whereas we can see the handful, you know, of the other eight who have said like, oh, I have felt very comfortable with the property manager. And so I will go and ask her for help. So I think that's something that we did. We just wanted to make sure that 
these residents felt safe. And now that they do, they aren't in that scared mindset of going to them and saying like, I just need one more month because they're more open and they're more honest. We have made it very clear. Like we can track patterns. Like you cannot come to us every single month and say, it'll be next month. Right? Like, can we outline a plan? Can we talk about what you're going to do to be able to get to it next month? We just made it an open communication space and that's worked out really well for us. I think it's also making it very clear that a moratorium on evictions doesn't absolve people of their obligation to pay rent. Yep. There's a lot of misconceptions out there where people say, oh, great, I'm off the hook. Well, no, sorry, you're not. Um, you're not getting a freebie here. Sorry. It's a recognition that at some point, all of that rent is still due. So whether you pay it now or you pay it later, you are getting the benefit. You don't go to the grocery store, take an apple and leave. You typically get arrested if you do that. And this is no different. No, absolutely. I mean, and even explaining it that, hey, yes, it may take time to fill out this rent relief program, but if you can get all of your back rent paid for, wouldn't it be worth it? And that was like eye-opening in itself for some of the residents. All right. So you're making the plunge. You're moving into full-time real estate investing and development, but what's the bigger picture? What's the goal here beyond just making some money? The main goal is that when Michael can, I guess, retire in seven years that we can fully go into real estate full-time. And what that will do for us is that we'll be able to serve beyond our four walls without the bounds of a traditional nine to five. And what that means for us is that like we can completely focus on creating an impact within our community, within the residents. And that's a huge reason even why I'm leaving my traditional nine to five in August, because I want to be able to create a bigger impact with the residents, you know, whether that is spending more time with the property manager to come up with creative ways, you know, to get them more comfortable, whether that is like creating events where they can do community outreach or apply tutoring, you know, because a lot of our assets, the families have children, like, how can we incorporate that? How can we incorporate like a class on financial literacy? So really the whole point is that we just want to create a community where our residents feel safe because when they feel safe and secure, you know, cause they no longer have to think about that basic need of shelter, they can then slowly start to get into a thriving mode instead of a surviving mode. And so that's really, really important for us. The whole question of affordable housing is one that makes headlines all the time. And it's certainly a huge problem nationwide. Is your focus strictly on affordable housing or is it on simply providing good quality market rate product and whoever is the right client for that, that's the right client? What, what is the focus? So we have actually looked at it both ways, but for right now, it's just creating quality because, you know, with affordable housing, you also have to be able to find an asset where that will work because that doesn't necessarily work in all of the different asset classes and the neighborhoods, you know, and so for the assets that we have taken down as of now, it's just creating quality and just to even add to that, like part of our business plan was how can we like make the lives of these residents a better place? And what we're doing is adding washer and dryers inside the units in itself. The residents will get so much time back because they don't have to get in the car or bring their kids along to the laundromat and wait for their laundry to be done and go home. Cause that can sometimes be an all day task. So it's just little tweaks of thinking about it like that. Like what else can we do right now? Because affordable housing like is not an option, like, or not 
not that it's not an option, but it's not available. You know, those assets aren't available at the moment. What else can we do in order to create an impact without having to just have an affordable housing asset? I read a research piece from the folks at Fannie Mae last week, and they do some of the best work in the nation in terms of research. And what they found was that there is actually a surplus of affordable housing, which may sound shocking, but in some cases it's in the wrong places, or in many cases, there are people that have the income to support a much more expensive place than they're living in, but that spot of affordable housing is actually being occupied by somebody who has the means, who has the income to have a much more expensive place. And that's, in fact, what's creating a lot of the shortage of affordable housing. It's not that it doesn't exist, is that it's not available. I don't know if that makes any sense, where someone you know, has got a really strong income and they're choosing not to spend it on housing. They're maybe driving a fancier car, or maybe they're traveling more, or whatever they're doing, they're not spending it on housing. Has that been your experience? Yes, and another part to add is that like some of the assets that we looked at where it was affordable housing, we saw that, yes, their rent was getting paid for the portion that the state would pay for, but then the Delta was not getting paid. And that created a huge economic occupancy at the time, you know, because what I think, not a lot of people, but some people go into it thinking that like their whole entire rent is paid for. And when I mean that, I just mean syndicators. And really that is not the case. There is that Delta and that Delta within a hundred units is a lot of money. Oh, it's absolutely. It's the difference between a profitable project and one that's, you know, limping along at best. Absolutely. Well, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? The best way to connect with us is is our website. And so you can go to adventurousrei.com forward slash info, and that will have everything there. You can find our podcast there. You can find our LinkedIn connections. Every single way to connect with us is, is on that page. So it's adventurous rei.com forward slash info. I love it. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Susie, for sharing your story. It's a great story. I love it. And for the listeners at home, definitely feel free to reach out to Michael and Susie at adventurousrei.com slash info. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. I'll talk to you again tomorrow.